S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 18, starring Julian Bond, originally aired on April 9th, 1977. Hello, Happy Easter. My name is Keith, and joining me tonight for this wonderful uh, episode of Saturday Night Live, or at least of SN Hell, is my good buddy Matt. Hello, Matt. Happy Easter, Keith. Hello. Have a hoppy day, as they used to say. <laughs> Thank you all. And joining us again, our uh, most prolific third chair. I've kind of lost count, but uh, it's Chili. Hello, Chili. Hey, guys. How's it going? Things are good. Things are good. Everything's going pretty okay, I guess. Yeah. So how did you guys feel about the name Julian Bond? Did it mean anything to you? Nothing. Nothing. No. Um, Of course, the musical guests tonight, Tom Waits and Brick, and we'll talk about them when they come up, but let's talk Julian Bond. Uh, Bond is an activist, or was an activist, civil rights leader, professor, was the founder of the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center. In 1965, Bond uh, got elected to the Georgia House of Representatives. The the status quo tried everything they could to get rid of him, and this uh, eventually went to the uh, Supreme Court. In 74, he was elected to the state Senate. Again, it was all controversial. People are trying to get rid of this guy because he seemed to be kind of a a left-wing straight shooter and a a black man as well in in Georgian politics in in the 60s and 70s. He was a opponent of the war, of the Vietnam War, very much a member of the uh, frontline member for the civil rights movement. So uh, this is a very interesting gentleman to be on the show tonight. It's not the type of person you're necessarily going to see, especially, you know, he's a he's not a uh, even a federal politician. He's a, he's a state guy. Yeah, that's weird. It's a, it's a little less glamorous, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. And you know how I feel generally about these people coming on to host. They uh, they make me pretty skeptical. Can you clarify what you mean by these people? <laughs> Politicians. There we go. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh, Ladies and gentlemen, S and Hell has been put on hiatus indefinitely <laughs> for retooling. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Matt has. Publicly stated many times that he doesn't like politicians hosting. <laughs> I need a minute. Yeah, normally if I don't recognize a name, I typically assume it's an actor or actress I'm not familiar with. I did a little bit of looking up and I thought this is going to be interesting because I didn't look up any history because, you know, you never know. Even the most, you know, esteemed people sometimes have falls from grace, but seems like a cool dude. I'm interested to see where this turns out. We'll jump to the cold open here. So Emily Latella is backstage picking petals off a flower. She's doing the he loves me, he loves me not deal. Jane joins her, and uh, Emily says she's met a new man, and and she's in love. Emily then breaks into, uh, you make me feel like a national woman. Jane corrects her and said, uh, it's now time for you to say never mind. And Emily says, no, live from New York. It's Saturday night. This is an interesting take on Emily Latella. I'm never fond of these backstage bits at lockers on a you know hit TV show. <laughs> kind of hokey for me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of goofy. It's like. More, you can't do this on television. Like, all Bill Murray has to put his shit in is a locker. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It, it wouldn't feel so hokey if it was done in a dressing room. I didn't mind this. It puts Emily in a new spot. I thought Jane was great. 
Only thing that really bugged me beyond the lockers in the background is uh, is we don't find out who he is. We never find out who she's in love with. I assumed that the joke was going to be who it was going to, you know, who the man was. And yeah, it was a bit of a damn squib in terms of the fact that it wasn't. It just led to another her mispronouncing something. You know, if I never see Emily Latella again, I'm happy with it. I did notice what you talked about, too, with the lockers. And I was like, it's weird they have the lockers, but it's a character. Like, mm-hmm. if it was just Jane talking to Gilda, it'd make a bit more sense. Like, okay, well, they're the actors. This is where they have to put your, their shit, like you said. But it's a character who's backstage at the locker. So it was doubly weird in that respect. Yeah, this is one of my least favorite cold opens yet. This is triply weird too, Chili. Did you notice the names on the locker? No. No, so Emily Latella has a locker and it's right next to Gilda Radner's locker. So that, like, for someone who's all about universe building and canon and stuff, that blew my mind and I just couldn't think of it anymore. <laughs> it's like Inception. Yeah. I don't mind them trying to do new things uh, with an old character, so I, I did appreciate that. I didn't, like, she she didn't come out here on uh, her, her wheelie chair in the middle of weekend update uh, to do her shtick. So already, like, I'm open-minded. I'm, I'm ready. I'm good for it. And, you know, now that you've mentioned it, I can't stop thinking about the locker thing. That's really stupid. We've seen dressing rooms before. Chevy had one last year, you know. Um, it just it's <laughs> That was Chevy, though. When he left, he had in his contract, he got to take the locker room with him. He took his dressing rooms, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why nobody liked them afterwards. And I'll tell you, we're going to see these lockers for many years to come. At least, uh, you know, at least I'm not, I won't go into it, but these lockers don't disappear right away. These stick around for a bit. I didn't think it was very funny, I guess, uh, you know, at the end of it all. I didn't laugh at all, actually. So we go to the intro and it's back. Last week we had Saturday Night Live. And like I said, it's back to just Saturday night. And I found this intro felt rushed or or, or a lot shorter than usual. Did you guys feel the same or is it just me? Uh, I didn't notice. The thing that threw me off is they still have... Uh, Bill Murray's mustache in his picture. Yeah, it's pretty. You know, it's a pretty big change for someone who's on TV. It takes two seconds to take a picture and probably an hour to edit them into the thing. Get rid of the mu- get cut the mustache out of the open. <laughs> Back then, it took two months to develop it, though. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice anything. So the monologue, uh, Julian Bond comes out. He's got a very serious demeanor. He says he found it odd that he was asked to host, but figured this forward-thinking cast who considered themselves leftists admired his political activism and his record of what he's done, and they want him there for that reason. Um, He notes that, no, they actually just wanted him there to play a chocolate Easter bunny. Bond is everything that the previous political hosts have been. There's a stiffness. He's definitely out of his element, but he seems so far out of his element that this delivery was hilarious to me. I couldn't stop laughing because it was so deadpan and it was so dry that me and about four people in the audience thought it was hilarious. And I think he did a great job here. Now, unlike other performers who've tried to be funny and sort of liven up their shtick a little bit, he made no attempt to be anything except legitimate Julian Bond here. Um, And also noted that the uh, joke about Easter is the only one I noticed that we get tonight. And it is Easter weekend there. So I don't know what the hell's up with that. How was the monologue, fellas? I pretty much agree with you completely. Uh, First of all, and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the entire night. The man is a snappy dresser. He walked out. I thought that is a fucking hell of a suit. And almost everything he wore for the rest of the night was just a plus and yeah his delivery was so deadpan and this is going to be a recurring theme is that i found it 
I don't know, almost refreshing. I, I liked the way he delivered what he had to deliver. I was wondering, I kept waiting for someone to, one of the not ready for primetime players to come out wearing a funny suit. I was wondering what the audience was laughing at. And I figured, oh, they maybe see maybe Belushi's coming up dressed in a costume or something. But no, they just either found what he was saying funny or they were laughing sarcastically. I don't know. But this left me wondering what the rest of the night is going to be like. But yeah, I liked the, kind of just the earnest seriousness of the way he delivered it. This is one of the worst monologues I've ever seen on the show so far. <laughs> this is exactly why these <laughs> political figures shouldn't host. Chili, I don't know if you're caught up on the backlog. I know the thousands remember, of course, that uh, just last week I was talking about how our host crossed a line for me into some weird, uncanny valley depravity that it was just bizarre and shocking and fun to watch this this thing try to be a man. <laughs> and this guy comes out here and he he's just, you know, I'm sure he's good at what he does. He's got a great resume. But I really hated the monologue. It's not making me feel good about the episode. I mean, what else what else can I say at this point? But hey, get right back to me after the first sketch. I wasn't sure if this would cross or not for you. I was thinking about that a lot because like you did assume that Jack Burns was either an alien or a robot who was in training to be a host. He was like like the NBC built him to see if they, <laughs> he could be like some sort of infinite immortal television personality. I, I didn't know if this crossed that for you or not. It didn't get there no. for me, no. Uh, it didn't cross into Jack's, Jack's Uncanny Valley. So uh, H&L Brock. So we have Lowell Brock back, and this is Belushi uh, returning with this character. I believe this is his third episode appearance, and he made multiple appearances throughout the other episodes. So he's giving more of his tax tips and why you should go to H&L Brock. Reason number 10, uh, he takes the time to do taxes correctly, and that's because... Reason 11, because he has the time, and he stands behind his work because he has the time. Which leads to reason 12 is he's actually doing time for tax evasion and fraud. So you can bring your taxes to him uh, during visiting hours, two to four every Tuesday, I think he says. And he calls in a guard played by Bill Murray, who he did the tax, uh, did a tax return in exchange for some cigarettes. I really like Lowell Brock. This is one of Belushi's better characters. I had a few laughs at this. Uh, him being in prison uh, gave me a, a bit of a chuckle. So, yeah, I liked this. It wasn't as good as the other ones, but it, it, it gave me some laughs. Yeah, this is fine. It had the nice little twist to it. It was, uh, you know, I, I've seen the other H, H and L block ones, and I would say I would put this one up there with the other ones. It's not fall out of your seat funny, but it was good. And I did like the prisoner doing the guards taxes, which predated the Shawshank Redemption by 17 years. This is not a big hit for me. I thought it was a pretty limp way to start the show. It's not like this is some hot recurring character like the Coneheads. Uh, this is the, the tax cheat guy. This is mid mid show <laughs> at best. You know, Belucci's fine at this character. I just I didn't think the jokes were very clever. I thought it was lazy comedy, just rolling out a character that we've done before. And oh yeah, he's a he's a shuckster, so let's have him behind bars, and then we just pan out at the end. We're now over to Black Perspective, and this is Garrett Morris hosting again, and his guest tonight is uh, Julian Bond, and they're talking about the myths around Black IQ and uh, why white people seem to have uh, higher IQs. Bond talks about the cultural bias in the IQ test. He gives examples of questions, and they're all about cocktail parties and yacht clubs and when to wear a tux. And uh, Garrett asks where these uh, thoughts about IQs come from. And Bond says it's based on his theory that light-skinned blacks are smarter than dark-skinned blacks. 
I know this is a touchy subject. I, I didn't realize how touchy a subject this is until I, I was reading up on this sketch. But uh, I, I got a big kick out of this because of Garrett's reaction to what was coming out of Bond and the seriousness with which this lauded civil rights activist was saying this. To be that deadpan and to be saying it was, was impressive, even for uh, someone who was a trained actor. Um, years later, Bond mentioned he was uneasy with the sketch. But as far as the comedy and the, the performance and the reactions, I, I got a real kick out of this. This is SNL highlight reel stuff for me. This is one of the oldest sketches I remember from when I was, you know, watching the tapes back in the day. I always knew this sketch. I never knew who Julian Bond was until you told me at the top of the episode. But I knew his face and this sketch uh, for a long time. And I always thought it was really, really funny. Garrett is incredible in it. And he does. I see. I didn't know he was a politician when it, when I uh, first saw this sketch. So one of the thousands might say, hey, does that mean maybe you have a, a bias against politicians for like, I'm, I'm going to come in and not think they're good automatically. You know what I mean? You know what I'm trying to say? I don't know. I never thought of it like that. But uh, I know I loved this sketch. And I know I thought they were both really good in it. And you know what I, th what I thought was a really good sign? The show had just has him out there playing a character that is really just him. Uh, that, that it's encouraging. They, they didn't go wacky with him right away. They put him out there as a serious character and a serious and really funny sketch. Uh, that gives me promise. This episode, I'm glad to hear that both of you guys liked it too, because I thought this sketch was a fantastic use of a non-performer guest. He's clearly a guy who's very used to giving speeches. First sketch, he played himself, but they had him go very much, you know, off kilter. And even before he got to the thing about <laughs> insane thing to think about having a civil rights leader, even as a joke saying the theory about the light-skinned blacks being smarter than dark-skinned blacks, which, you know, right off the bat, I think especially after the monologue you kind of wonder like you know how serious is this politician going to take himself and right off the bat he went in there with something you know that i guess deep but even before that i i love the line when he delivered the second one for the iq test like when waxing your skis and it got cut off right away in a very short sketch there were two or three laugh out loud moments and his deadpan delivery and his seriousness combined with garrett's reactions to it really made this work very well for me. This is, spoiler alert, this is one of my favorite sketches I think I've seen. So my, my question for you guys both is, is this funnier because of who he is? Like if this was Richard Pryor doing the sketch with Garrett Morris or, uh, or Flip Wilson or another comedian of the time, is it funnier because it is actually someone who was truly on the front lines of the civil rights movement? Absolutely. Someone who's clearly dealt with very serious issues and has been on the front lines to still be able to like take a step back and, you know, find some of the humor in it. It wouldn't be funny if it was another comedian or if it was another uh, member of, you know, the repertory cast or whatever. So for me, this being person with actual, uh, you know, gravitas and respectability is a big part of what makes it fun. I, I I guess I disagree. Uh, I don't think it makes it funnier. I think it's just funny. I think that could have been anybody in it. But if they, you know, a good actor pulls that off, I don't think because it's him, it's funnier. That's just my opinion, though, man. So an Oval Office is where we're heading now. 
and it's the Carters. It features Lorraine as Amy Carter, and she's singing a song with a black doll who she refers to as Mandingo, and I think this is mainly referring to the film from a few years previous. Dan, as Jimmy Carter, kicks her out of the office. A really bad sound buzzer goes off. And it's the secretary saying Andrew Young and Julian Bond are there. So we met Andrew Young, uh, Garrett's version of Andrew Young in the Chris Christopherson episode. So Carter asks Julian how things are going in the peach state. And Julian says it's the pits. Uh, Young and Bond are trying to get Carter to affirm his commitment to human rights. But uh, Carter keeps refocusing the conversation really mainly on his modest upbringing. After chatting for a bit, Carter is called to a meeting where the National Security Council is hearing on a, a hearing about violations of human rights concerning a Turkish sailor being underfed in Paraguay. And he has to go and basically brushes off the two guys that uh, are talking about civil rights. Garrett says that Carter really cares. And Bond says he sure do, Andy, referring to the old Amos and Andy thing. This was really smart writing. It was fa- it was fairly funny, but I thought this was really smart writing to show even an issue now where sometimes I think human rights violations elsewhere are, are dealt with more than the ones that are dealt with locally. So I thought this was, or, or within one's own country. So I thought this was a big deal and, and, and actually a very smart sketch and well pulled off. Uh, so the overall bulk of the sketch uh, after Bond and uh, Garrett came in, I enjoyed it was well written, but I do have two pretty big issues with the sketch in itself. Uh, first of all, I just, you know, I just don't like any real portrayal of a child that young, whether they're, you know, a famous person's kid or not. You know, you can always just leave the kids out of it. I think she was probably like 10 or 11 at the time. And also the part with the gollywog doll, or I guess like the nowadays definitely uh, racist doll, I think it kind of brought something up that was kind of a bit of a recurring theme for the rest of the episode. I don't know how much of this was, I guess we'll say like approved of or recommended by uh, Julian Bond, but it seemed like this was a an episode where a lot of the writers, it just gave them an excuse to say, okay, now now we can break out our race jokes and it'll be fine. We have a civil rights activist here. You know, if he's here, it's going to be approved. While I mostly agree with Chili, I think my only disagreement, for lack of a better way to put it, is that I doubt that the writers thought of it maliciously because I think sometimes they just get lazy. I, I don't think it comes from a place of let's let's get in our nasty jokes, uh, maybe a little more like, let's just take the week off and write a bunch of these fucking stupid jokes. There's no substance to them. I also decided while watching this sketch that I missed Chevy Chase doing Ford a little bit. Dan does a good Carter and it's funny and the sketch is clever, but I missed that just straight silly comedy that Chevy Chase brought to Ford. Carter hasn't hit that laugh out loud plateau for me as good as Dan Aykroyd does it. There was a lunacy and a and a craziness about Ford that Carter doesn't have. Yeah, and that's I guess that's more my that's my style of comedy. That irreverent lunatic who tries to answer a shoe or whatever the hell he did. So we now go to Tom Waits. Now Tom Waits, uh jazz, blues, little bit of everything, piano, you know, uh He's a musician, but I mean, I see some performance art there as well. Like, there's definitely a character there. It's a spokesman for the the the, the extremely downtrodden, um, sort of through jazz and stuff like this. This is just a very interesting case study, is Tom Waits. 
I like Tom Waits a lot, but full disclosure, I can really only do about three or four songs at a time. Um, and, and then I sort of have to walk away for a little bit. The poetry, well, I'll jump into Eggs and Eggs and Sausage is the song he does. This is really good. It was released on Nighthawks at the Diner in 1975. The album hit 164 on Billboard's Hot 200. The lyrics for me are fantastic. The, the music is nice and jazzy. I mean, it's certainly a unique voice, no question about that. Um, I like this. Uh, it was a weird episode to have it on, though. I, I, I thought this could have fit maybe better on another one. And also, you know, may as well say it, there's only one Tom Waits tonight. And that that sort of jarred me a little bit, too. But for what this was, yeah, this was pretty good. On, I can honestly say I've heard about Tom Waits forever. A lot of musicians I like credit him as an influence, but I honestly don't know if I've ever heard a Tom Waits song knowing it was a Tom Waits song. I It was not what I was expecting. And as soon as he started singing, I thought, this is that guy with that voice. You know, I mean, very distinctive. He's been parodied in probably a million things I've seen. Um, as far as the performance itself goes, it's not my style, but I did like it a lot. And it's not going to be everyone's type of music, but I can definitely see how people who like him will like him a lot. Uh, I love Tom Waits as Renfield and Bram Stoker's Dracula. I knew him as an actor before I heard any of his songs. Jesus, that's where I recognize him from. <laughs> yeah, and this is fine. Also about Tom Waits, every girl I've ever had a relationship with, I feel, has been a Tom Waits fan. I know that's just my personal experience. But, you know, I still think about it, and we're talking about Tom Waits. I thought this was okay. I guess, you know, you're, you're right, Chili. It's a bit of a character, I think. It was a little much for me. I liked the vibe. Uh, I just didn't really like the song so much, I guess. I would have really liked another taste. It's so stupid to have two musical guests do one song each throws off the whole tone of the show. So now we go to Dr. X, and this features Dan Aykroyd under a metal mask, and he's a family counselor. He has an audience sitting in as he counsels a, the M family. So this is the return of Colleen Furman, uh, the Gilda character from the One Flew Over the Hornet's Nest. Her husband is uh, Harry, played by Bill Murray, and their son, Mark, played by John Belushi. Basically, Dr. X is trying to counsel this family, and Buddy is a bit of a brat, and he asks how Aykroyd got this mask, and Aykroyd says it was at a toxic waste spill in 1956, and he goes into this hysterical laughter or hysterical crying. Then Buddy asks how Dr. X lost his arm, which is now kind of a, a metal appliance, and I think literally an appliance. I think it's like a, an electric mixer or something. And Aykroyd says there was a missile test. And then Aykroyd says that the actual problem is Colleen, who is catatonic and is the one that really needs help. And then Dr. X asks Mark if he wants a job, and Mark says yes, and he's sent off into a room where we hear the sounds of screaming and saws. This was a tale of two halves. The first bit with the masked supervillain-looking guy saying he was a family counselor got a couple of laughs at me, but once they brought in the other family and this complete mess of family counseling and uh the the colleen fernman character who i don't particularly like anyway and belushi being a brat i don't know this went really really downhill really really fast and to me it felt like about 
10 sketches in one and bits and pieces from like a hodgepodge of other things that were thrown into one sketch really didn't like this. It was, it was, I thought it was pretty shitty to be honest. Yeah, this was a very interesting premise. I liked the concept of, you know, the super villain who now has a regular job. I was kind of excited about that. Was is going to be a good good concept and with Ackroyd doing it, I thought this could be really something fun and it just was a hodgepodge and it was a whole mess once it started going and very few sketches I wanted to like more and it just fell flat on its face. Not a good sketch at all, but a really good premise. I would have liked to see them do something better with Dr. X Family Counselor. Well, my guys thought this was awesome. Can I say sometimes it's weird to go last when you guys hated it and I'm like, oh, no, this was the shit. Uh, But I must stand by how I felt when I watched it and it was delighted. I, I thought it was so weird. Belushi was so annoying as that kid but he was so good the dad and his just flying over to him and his right what's up with the mask come here it was just it was so over the top and gilda sitting there that was strange i'm surprised this wasn't on last this was a bizarre sketch this is this is the kind of shit that i want to see on late night tv this hideous hooked man (laughs) trying to help a family and the father attacking the son and being held back by this hideous man insane laughter it was uh i just i thought it was ambitious i totally understand why people would not like it but for me oh yes right on the money is this the first use of like a hockey mask i know it was like silver and supposed to be metal but you know it had the hockey mask look is this the first use of a hockey mask as like a villain accessory i mean it's before jason it's before lord humongous maybe dr doom dr doom is what i was thinking of but even his wasn't a hockey mask was it no but i mean this could be considered a cheap facsimile of dr doom i think so we now have a chiron and it's uh, this person knows the lyrics to hollywood squares theme we go to weekend update and jane jumps right to it and there's a dead elephant a picture of a dead elephant and jane says dumbo crashed And a snowstorm that canceled a baseball game, Jane announces, was actually canceled due to cocaine, but the audience had a great time. We then go to an ad, and it's right on Afro Luster, and this was written by (laughs) Al Franken and Tom Davis. And it features Julian Bond in an Afro uh, wig advertising a new hairspray for blacks, and it comes in a uh, raised black power fist. What bugged me was I was all confused because everybody on stage was white except uh, Bond himself, and it was like that kind of made things a little confusing for me. Other than that, that's the first half of Update. Update's very short tonight, but uh, so far so good. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit torn on the Afro luster, though. How about you guys for the first half? Yeah, I think I agree with you, Keith. I really hated the audio. The, there was audio trouble in the the Afro luster. I just, I, I couldn't hear him and it killed the joke. Jane was fine. Yeah, there was nothing that appealed to me in this first half of Weekend Update. Same, I didn't like the commercial. I didn't find it was really funny and it wasn't really a good use of Bond either. For me. Second half, and bear in mind this again, really short. There's an image of Ken Norton with a Rolls Royce and they're going to be fighting each other in the Norton's next boxing match. An image of a baby who looks like Mao Zedong, and Jane says they're calling him Hi Chairman Mao, which gets audible groans from the audience um, and a huge laugh from me. 
And then there's a story about the Concorde now landing in New York City, and this story is drowned out by the sound of the Concorde landing in New York City. One of them rare times for me where the second half of Weekend Update was way better than the first. I laughed at everything in the second half. Yeah, I like the second half better too. Hi, Chairman Mao. I love when they can get a long, audible groan from the audience. Jane really elevates her performance when she knows the material is good. This almost convinced me of that. She really brought it in the second set, or second set, you know what I mean, the the second segment with her delivery. It's kind of like a set. And yeah, the, the material was just a little stronger. They backloaded it. That's fine with me, as long as you load it somewhere. Crazy short update. Really crazy short. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mind. This worked, though. They picked. It looked like they picked the good ones, you know? Yeah. Uh, So now we go to great moments in Motown and we go to the Lilac Club in Detroit and Garrett leads a Motown group featuring Murray, Belushi and Aykroyd and they sing uh, Love Bank. So Julian Bond is there dressed in flashy clothes. I don't know if he's supposed to be Barry Gordy or not. Um, And he stops them singing and says they don't belong in a nightclub. Aykroyd thinks it's the clothes. Uh, Bond says it's actually Fontaine, which is Belushi's character. He's breathing wrong. They start singing again. Bond cuts them off and wonders where the uh, hand gestures that they used when he saw them outside Cobo Hall, where them hand gestures went. They said they weren't doing hand gestures. They were just directing traffic. I don't know if these guys are supposed to be black. Like if they said, let's make them black, but it won't be offensive if we don't use blackface. Um, I personally took it that they were like white posers, but I I just reading online. Some people think this is, you know, three white guys playing uh, black guys. I couldn't get over that question in my head watching the sketch. Uh, I thought Garrett was great. I actually thought Bond was great. Um, The guys use some pretty funny voices, I suppose, especially if they're like white guys trying to be black. But uh, I I really couldn't get my head around it. Didn't get too many laughs out of this anyway. If ever there was a sketch where they could have brought in some outside performers, it could have been this one. Because it really hurts what was, I thought, a really good performance by Garrett, especially, you know, he can he can fucking sing like Garrett did a great job and Bond did a great job too. You know, he, he looked a lot like Bruno Mars at first, which is very distracting. Uh, but once again, great suit. So I give that full thumbs up, but they should have just not had it be Belushi, Aykroyd and Bill Murray. Like just bring in some outside, you know, African-American performers to be those, uh, the background guys. And it would have gotten rid of all of the problems with this sketch. It's, fucking new york there are lots of african-american performers who could come in and do an awesome job at that and it would have made this sketch 10 times better and it would have gotten rid of all of the cringe aspects to it yeah i thought it was really shitty i didn't like it for a second fucking sat through it barely patiently waiting for it to end i didn't like the jokes i didn't like the whole setup you know i don't like to be so crass but i just thought it was stupid and i know that's not very insightful of me to say I hate when sketches bore me. That's the worst thing you could do to me is bore me. We now go to Creeley's Soup, and this is another one of the uh, highlight reel ones. This is actually one of Gilda's favorite sketches she ever did. And it's Gilda, she's a little girl eating some soup, and Murray, as a voiceover, comes in and asks her questions about what she's eating. And he tells her to uh, count the veggies, and she smears it on the table and counts out the ve- veggies. He then tries to bribe her with uh, different things to get the soup, but she won't do it. So then he tells her to stuff the corn up her nose and pour some hot soup on her face. And she does it. This is, I think, a parody of the uh, one of the more prominent soup ads at the time, which was pretty much the same thing, except this one certainly goes a little more extreme. This is okay. I like when Gilda plays a little kid. I'm surprised it's on Gilda's personal best list. And it actually made it onto her best of tape that came out. Uh, but yeah, this was okay for me. I didn't get a big laugh out of it. But uh, but yeah, not bad. 
if it was filmed more like maybe a commercial, I would have enjoyed it more. But for me, this was just, I don't know, there's nothing to it. It just kind of stank. They both did a good job with the performances, but there's nothing to the sketch. Sorry, guys. I thought it was really funny. thought it was weird and kooky. Gilda was awesome. I liked the, the, the weird, almost the, you know, it was creepy because the, the soup man says so. Like, come on. That's some weird shit to be seeing on late night TV. This little girl pouring soup on her face because <laughs> the soup man says so. Do you know what that's like when you're high and it's two? <laughs> that's messed up. So this is the kind of thing I do appreciate Saturday Night Live doing. Uh, and I really thought it was weird and Gilda killed it. She sold the whole thing that had that sinister edge that I just enjoy in my comedy. So I loved it. Now, I couldn't find if this was an O'Donohue piece, but it wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me either, based on what I know. So, uh, this Chiron, this person has every known annoying habit. We now go to bad cinema, and it's the return of Dan Aykroyd's uh, Leonard Pint Garnell. This time he has panel with him, uh, Belushi as Truman Capote. Lorraine is returning as Lena Wertmuller, and who actually comes in late to the sketch. I wondered about that one. And uh, Bond himself is playing T. Laszlo de Wiza. And they watch the movie called, it's a French movie called Ooh La La Legs. And it's just random shots of a woman dancing to French jazz. This doesn't look like something made by the SNL crew. So Belushi as Capote says it's terrible and classic. Lena says the director has a common motif of uh, having women twist on camera. And he abuses his pinks and knows how to pick a terrible crew. Wiza says he can't say much because his background is 3D insect fear films from the 60s. This was good, not awesome. Uh, Aykroyd was great in this character. Belushi did a good Capote. I didn't like what he was saying, though, um, but his impression was good. Uh, Lorraine as Lena Wertmuller, I always like, and this is actually her favorite impression that she ever did on the show. And uh, big kudos for Bond for actually being a somebody who, again as a politician, really stepped out of what they would normally give a non-performer. And I actually thought he was pretty good in this sketch. So uh, this was no patch on uh, bad theater that we saw one other time, uh, but this was okay. Yeah, I got a little excited when I saw this because I liked the bad theater sketch, if I remember correctly. Belushi did a good Truman Capote. I agree. The impression was good. What he was given to say was kind of more, you know, typical, you know, kitschy, uh, you know, gay jokes and all that. But I guess that is the Truman Capote impression, especially back then. Bond did good. Lorraine, as always, there was seemed like a screw up where she didn't have her mic when she first went out and it was covered very well, if that's the case. I liked this sketch. I'm also a fan of bad 3D insect fear films from the 60s, so maybe I'm biased. Of all the SNL bits so far, this is one of the ones that feel the most almost like Python inspired, where it's people talking very intelligently about very stupid things. And it was well done. Was it a home run? No, but I would rather watch the bad cinema more than 99% of the Gary Weiss films I've seen. So it was a good five, seven minutes of uh, TV for me. Yeah, it was a little odd. Uh, I guess I, I was pretty, pretty banal toward it. I, I didn't, I neither loved it nor hated it. The show's so all over the place this week. It almost keeps me off balance. And the, I think that inconsistency this late in the show has begun to harm it. Wasn't sure if being off balance was a good thing or a bad thing. I don't, I don't think it's great. I, I mean, it can be great. It's not, it doesn't feel targeted. Our next uh, musical guest is Brick. And uh, they do their their hit, uh, Daz. And this is jazz funk. This song was their biggest hit. 
released in 76. It went to number three in the U.S. pop charts. There's some really interesting stuff here with jazz, funk, disco kind of all merged together. There's a flute in there and a saxophone. Uh, These guys were really good. For me, one song was enough. Now, they're an Atlanta band that was sort of on the crest of popularity. With Bond being from Georgia, I wonder if there was some connection there, if he had requested them or something. It's odd. I don't normally like when they have two separate musical numbers, or in some cases, three separate musical acts. But for me, this one worked out perfectly because I don't think I would have enjoyed another Tom Waits song. And I don't think I would have enjoyed another Brick song. But as it was, one song in, one song out. I think I've said this for a lot of bands that we've had so far on the show is that I like them, but I don't know if I could listen to a full album. So this is like the SNL episode of what I like in some of these bands. Give me your big hit and then move on. I'll listen to something else. It was nice to see somebody actually playing the jazz flute. And I don't know what the, I don't know what he did with it, but there was a solid 30 seconds where he was kind of blowing into it, kind of wasn't. Bands like this, they're missing that great band leader. They're missing that Carlos Santana, who was an amazing band leader. They're missing that Frank Zappa. They're missing that guy. Otherwise, they're just competent players out there playing effing popular disco music. <laughs> they're Boz Skaggs without Boz Skaggs. Exactly. <laughs> we now go to the civil rights Farbers, and uh, this is Julian Bond as himself visiting Larry and Bobby Farber to talk about having a civil rights fundraiser at their home. The Farbers were picked because they were seen as a progressive couple, and Bond starts to explain how unemployment is a real issue in the black community. The progressive, Larry, can't understand why black people don't just stay in school and get jobs. Farber keeps trying to direct the conversation towards black celebrities, and as the conversation goes on, we see that the Farbers are far from progressive. Dan, Lorraine, Bill, and Jane come in as neighbors for an evening of backgammon. Uh, Larry announces that they're going to be having a civil rights party where Julian Bond will be speaking. And Larry suggests that they invite the uh, one set of black neighbors down the street to next week's backgammon, but the others vote against it. Julian Bond starts speaking about why it's important to have these parties and Bill and Jane get up to start to make a drink. This worked for me. If there was a sketch on this episode where I felt like Julian Bond would have had a say in what was written, I got to assume he deals with this all the time. You know what I mean? Like the waspy, like you said, wannabe progressive. I didn't find this to be a particularly funny sketch, but I did find it really well written. And maybe the humor is lost in the fact that it's 45 years later and this is still just as relevant now, I'm sure, as it was back then. But there are two pretty big laughs in here, despite me not finding most of the sketch that funny was a how long like all the white people when they showed up, how long they just chattered back and forth. There was no just, hey, how's it going? And that was it. Like there was just a solid minute of just introductions and laughing and all that stuff. It went on for so long. It was funny while they were trying to actually like introduce him. And then as he starts speaking and Bill Murray's like, hey, do you mind if I just uh, get a second to go fix a drink? That was funny. but. Also, in a way, it was a very sad sketch, too, because nothing has changed. I'm with you guys, finally. thought this was really good. Uh, Definitely, Jilly, yeah, felt like something probably real life for him. I thought everybody was really good in it. I like the Farbers, too. Uh, Everybody just really brought it, and uh, it got to be clever and a little silly. Bill Murray, I, I really enjoyed. 
I mean, I guess I don't have a lot to add. We now go to Mr. Mike's least love bedtime tales, but it's been postponed for Mr. Mike meets Uncle Remus. So Mr. Mike shows up at Uncle Remus's cabin, and of course, it's Michael O'Donohue and uh, Garrett is playing Uncle Remus. Mr. Mike wants to do his version of Br'er Rabbit, so he goes into great detail about some of the pain that Br'er Rabbit went through when he was being skinned. Remus asks for a moral, and Mike says there's no moral, just needless violence. At the very top of this sketch, there was something good, but then Mike seemed to start rushing it. And for some reason, there was something extra mean about this one. I like Mr. Mike, but this one kind of crossed the line for me. Couldn't stop thinking that both Garrett and, and, and Mike O'Donohue couldn't stand each other. God, this one just didn't sit well. I don't know. I thought Garrett was really good and, and this could have been something special, but this one had strains of bullying to it or something. I, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't like it the way I liked all the other Mr. Mikes. I'm not as familiar with the Mr. Mikes as you guys are. Actually, like this is the first one I've watched. I mean, I've listened to your uh, views on some of them. Uh, and I get that they're typically a bit darker than the average sketch. This one started off with a lot of promise, like you said. Garrett as Uncle Remus is like, oh, this could be something. And it could actually, like, you know, Uncle Remus comes with his own set of asterisks you have to put by. But I honestly thought, like, this could be a good recurring character for Garrett because he did a great job as him. And even, like, his reactions underneath the hat and the beard and all that were great. I did love the line when <laughs> Uncle Remus says, oh, make yourself at home. And Mr. Mike goes, here? Not likely. Great line. I hope to use that at least several times, you know, before I die. It was dark. It, it had its funny moments. This sketch kind of fell apart a little bit after the first 30 seconds. It's probably the second sketch this episode, I can say, where it had an interesting premise that just fell by the wayside. I had to rewatch the first half of this. Uncle Remus is one of my uh, favorite Frank Zappa songs. And I sang it to myself during the first half of the sketch, so I had to go back. This this episode can it's going to some pretty dark places sometimes with that that hideous family therapist and Carter sketch was a little weird as as Chili addressed and the, the, it's going to some weird places. So I didn't I didn't always like it, but uh, because I didn't think all the jokes landed, but this this is still I'm still on board with this. Like this one. You know, if it's a thumbs up, thumbs down, it gets a thumbs up. Red light, green light, it gets a green light. I would have put this on the show, too. So next up is a Gary Weiss film, and it's with uh, it's an interview with Patty Smith, uh, Matt's favorite performer from season one. So she's talking about uh, little kids getting a guitar to enter the battleground of rock. There's some stills of her, and she talks about a year before when she performed on SNL and uh, did it to reach out and communicate with, with so many people immediately. But before they were on, they were told to change some words. So they did it. I'm catching some some regret from her here. That all being said, uh, this was a middle of the road Gary Weiss for me. Patty Smith went from being very eloquent and intelligent to kind of blathering on. So on this show, it's been well documented that I am not a fan of most Gary Weiss films. In this case, I have to say, all of the other Gary Weiss films are way better than this one. <laughs> This was the most pretentious rock star shit I think I've heard in my entire life. The second she started talking about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross for this, but not for me. And I'm like, I get it. It's your lyrics. But like part of what I like about, you know, especially early punk is it's you know rebelling against the pretentiousness of 
popular music. Obviously, Patti Smith, very influential and all that, but this was just garbage. A musician explaining why they censored their music. It just reminded me of uh, The Simpsons, like, what I want, I want to hug and kiss you for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like, <laughs> this is awful. This is my least favorite Gary Weiss film so far, and I've hated almost all of them. Even the ones I liked, I only liked in comparison to the other ones. <laughs> I almost shut it off and just walked around my house for a little bit. It was like my least favorite type of person was being displayed on national TV right here. And it was just garbage. I fucking hated this. And and Gary Weiss once had a guy French kissing a dog on one of his films. So <laughs> this is worse than that. Yeah, good golly gosh, I didn't hate it that much, that's for darn sure. Patti Smith was my favorite musical uh, guest of season one. I didn't uh, mind her explaining what was going on. For me, it was just a little kind of cool behind-the-scenes peek. I-, I understood her logic because they did change the words to like you know, when she sang my generation, she does change the words to it. And uh, they're a little more nihilistic. And she didn't do them on the show and her justification for not doing them on the show. I got it. I I, don't get me wrong, Chili. I totally see where you're coming from. A hundred percent. I would agree with anybody that is coming with that opinion. I don't know, maybe because I liked that performance so much when we saw it. And I just really find her interesting in general. That I, I was significantly more forgiving than you were. So we now go to George Wallace and it's uh, John Belushi and he's talking about the new South where racist signs, uh, where the old racist signs have been replaced with ones that are cleaner and, and, and nicer looking. Wallace says it's time for the rest of the country to stop thinking of the South as racist because they're making progress. This was dumb. I think George Wallace was not so much of a going concern anymore. He'd been shot a few years before. He'd allegedly sort of gone a bit left and backed off on his segregationist stance. I think by this point, I could be wrong. But yeah, this was just, this was dumb. It really felt like uh, stupid filler. And again, it it couldn't be anything else on this episode. They had to go with the race thing, I guess. Yeah, there was a reason this is the last sketch on the episode. I don't know George Wallace too well. It seemed like it was a... There's a few funny bits. It wasn't the worst thing they could have done. But once again, it just felt like, you know, this is the race episode. Let's get it all out now. Because otherwise, why would they do a George Wallace sketch? This shouldn't have even been on this part of the show. Uh, I just thought it was really stupid. It was trying to be, you know, it was trying to push the envelope a little bit. I was just failing miserably. There was no life to Belushi's performance. It was a little offensive. Okay, so there's Chiron. This person showers in the dark. And we go to the good nights. Uh, Julian Bond thanks everyone, and most of the cast are wearing Julian Bond and 76 t-shirts. I noticed as the camera was panning over the audience, there's a, a fella in the audience who's making a very conscious effort not to be seen on the camera, and I can't help but wonder what that was about. Uh, yeah, that was the, uh, the good nights. Anything jump out? Did you guys notice that fella in the audience, like, ducking down? I didn't. Could have been like Henry Hill or something, maybe. <laughs> was he was he in uh, witness protection at that time? But no, not yet. This may be a spoiler for a couple minutes from now when you ask how I think the host did. I did immediately go on Amazon and see if there's like a Julian Bond in 76 t-shirt for sale, and there is not, unfortunately. No, he didn't run. That is another weird one. Julian Bond. Uh, in a way that's really rare. This is a host with no performing chops who I thought nailed almost everything by doing nothing. 
It's almost anti-performing because he didn't try to be a comedian. He did everything as if it was real, and uh, and and that really worked. The, I was nervous after the last couple of like Politicos and Fran Tarkenton being there, but I just thought Bond was good, and he fits in a different category to me. I really appreciate too. I mean, he's a, he's somebody there as himself who is not a performer, and they gave him stuff to do, like the bad film sketch and that terrible Motown sketch, but yet they still stayed true to who he was and ended some sketches as himself. I actually thought he did a pretty good job and has actually did far better than some of the uh, performers that we've seen thus far. I totally agree. For a non-performer, he did what he was asked. Sometimes you get the non-performers and they feel like they have to perform. And I kind of feel like he just said, I'm going to deliver these lines as I'll deliver them. And for some people that may work, for some people it wouldn't. And it worked more often than it didn't. Um, he was very good in Black Perspective sketch. I liked him in the bad cinema. Uh, he was good in the sketch with Carter. I said it at the, at the top, they used him the way you should use a non-perform. I was very pleasantly surprised with, you know, what he delivered. I've said before, I remember the episodes based on the host. And I think I'll remember this one more than a lot of the other episodes I've watched with you guys. He did pretty good for me for a, uh, a host that does not have the background necessary to host the show. This did not change my opinion at all that these politicians should be out here hosting the show. It wasn't any star-making performance. Nobody would have ever asked him to do it again, uh, which is a pretty good barometer too, I think. So, you know, yeah, a couple of times they got it right, lightning in a bottle style, in my opinion. But for the most part, I, I thought he was a serviceable dud, for lack of a better way to put it. So uh, Julian Bond, he he stayed in public life for a number of years, uh, serving the people of Georgia. He did try to get into federal politics at one point. It, it didn't work out, but uh, still had a very high profile. By the 2000s, he, he was sort of in like a semi-retirement of, of sorts, but he was a professor and a writer and stuff. But he was an ardent critic of like far right conservative. He was really much against the neocons. Um, sadly, passed away in 2015 at the age of 75. The music. Uh, so we had Tom Waits. We had Brick. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to be the only person ever to lump them together, other than whoever booked this show. I liked both. Strange pairing, and I think I think the show could have been better served with both of these groups having their own week. But yeah, all things considered, this was not a not a bad night for music for me. Yeah, this was nuts and gum together at last for me. Two very different artists, and I don't think I would have enjoyed either of their second bits as much as I enjoyed the first ones. So, you know, it, it kind of worked out perfectly as far as like my musical tastes. Neither one of these bands fall into something I listen to a lot of, but if their songs popped up in a playlist, I'd be happy to listen to them. Oddly enough, like I normally hate when they mix the musical acts, but I said it before, like this one worked for me because it was, you know, two bands I, I was not familiar with and I liked both of the songs. So I can't complain. I was actually pretty happy with this one. Pretty middle of the road, I thought it was. Uh, I'm not only my girlfriends like Tom Waits, only my sweethearts. I only prefer his acting in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I thought Brick was just some AM 70s disco nonsense they they're they're missing the crucial element to make them any sort of proper success they had the jazz flute the jazz flute indeed uh, such flute magic there was but 
so misguided, so without direction. It, it was fun to watch the performance. I would never listen to that, though. I would never sit back and put on Brick for pleasure. And I don't know enough about Tom Waits because, I don't know, whenever I try to listen to him, I just think about all these old girlfriends I had. So what was the worst sketch of the night? Obviously, I hated the Patty Smith bit, but I don't consider that a sketch. That was just almost like a paid advertisement for somebody apologizing for why they sold out at the time. Obviously, this is not a popular opinion, but I'd say Gilda's Soup. I just thought it was a bit of a bust and it ended up with just somebody pouring soup on her face. It's <laughs> It was just low-hanging fruit. The performances were okay. I mean, there was lots of more offensive stuff on the show. I mean, as far as offensive stuff, I could have said five or six sketches of shit that shouldn't ever be on national television. But for comedy-wise, I just found this is a, this is a bust. That George Wallace thing was uh, really stupid and too long and pointless and just shouldn't have been on the show. Uh, I think it kind of spoke to Chili's point earlier that they're they're just they're just kind of rolling shit out because they have the opportunity. Maybe they're just lazy, Chili. But you know what? Either way, it sucks and it shouldn't be on TV. I hated this piece. Laziness is often the number one reason why people are shitty. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> For me, uh, this is funny. We all went in different directions. I went with Dr. X, family therapist, whatever the fuck it was. This thing really went off the rails too early for me. But unlike others, it started really strong. And I thought this was going to be, this is probably my fault, but I thought this was going to be great. I was looking and saying, oh, Dan's got a silver mask and he's going to be this this awesome super villain family counselor and and then the rest of it went to shit um no story no resolution odd group of characters a child gets murdered it was really a patchwork of eight shitty ideas thrown into one sketch soup i do have to mention how bad the uncle remus sketch made me feel but because mr mike's sketches has the intent of making you feel bad uh, I can't put it there as much as Dr. X, which was supposed to be funny. It was terrible. What was the best, fellas? Black Perspectives. It was well written. It was funny. It was the best use of a host who is not a performer. And one thing they did really well here, which you know is often, I think, overlooked in SNL, was they put this early. This is the first thing we really got to see Julian Bond in. And after the monologue, you start thinking like, you know, this guy, you know, he's a politician, civil rights activist. How much is he going to be in on the joke? And this is the perfect way to bring him in. He didn't have to step too far out of his comfort zone. For me, this is one of my favorite sketches I've watched every episode I've done with you guys. And it was just overall, it was just really well done. And it was up front. So you kind of knew like, okay, thank God this host is not going to be, you know, you know your typical politician host, right? So. I love this sketch. I thought it was great. Both guys did a good job, and I was a big fan. You know, it's funny because my two favorite sketches of the night were Gilda and the Soup and the hideous family counselor supervillain. <laughs> You're going to say Patty Smith? That, that would have been my third. So I'm sitting here like, <laughs> these are like these two guys' least favorite. Which one did I like more, though? And uh, for me, it's a tough decision because I thought Gilda was awesome in that soup sketch. And I loved the sinister because the soup man said so voice that's just making her do horrible things. Uh, but I really loved the complete insanity 
of the X skit. I'm going to go with it. That's the one. It's the family counseling, the supervillain. I totally get. I get why anyone not like this. I understand. This is for me. This is for Matthew. This is not for you. I deserve this after everything we've watched. I deserve this. For me, it was also Black Perspectives. Chilius summed it up. Um, I don't have much else to say there. Yeah, I just thought this was, that was a really well done, well written sketch. Who was your star of the night, fellas? I'll start off by saying this is the most I've liked Belushi in a, in any episode. He did not do the typical Belushi fly off the handle shit. But that being said, uh, for me, it, this was definitely like a good episode for Garrett. He's getting my start of the night. He did really well. I felt like he was more on than usual. And, you know, read into this what you would, but I feel like he felt a lot more responsibility this episode to really deliver. For my opinion, he was the star of the Motown sketch. He did an awesome job in Black Perspective. He was really good in um, Uncle Remus. The sketch itself was was what it was. But, like, this is the first time where I... And I could really see the performer... Everybody, you can see for a long time why they became stars. And I feel like this was an episode where it's like, shit, I see why Garrett could have been a bigger star than he was because he was really on this episode. And I felt like he felt like he had something to prove and he did great this one. Tough choices for me because I liked a lot of people. I think the cast, the not ready for prime time players were excellent throughout this entire episode and every sketch i really thought everybody brought it gilda radner is my personal winner for this episode the soup thing i'm sorry chili i thought it was fucking awesome when she was that weird vegetative character in my favorite sketch of the night sorry keith uh i really thought that was a home run even as latella at the beginning, there was a different element to the character. Yeah, she was my favorite cast member of the night. Uh, Gilda was my second pick, but I, I also went with Garrett for all the reasons Chili, uh, Chili noted. Not only was he good in everything he did tonight, he was far away from everything that I really hated tonight, too. So solid support throughout, no big fails. Everybody had something tonight that worked for me, but uh, a couple of them had a couple of things that really tanked for me. So it was definitely garish for me uh, tonight. So uh, overall, uh, Julian Bond, and uh, like Richard Pryor the previous year, a a huge portion of the show was just devoted to race issues. I mean, in a way, it makes sense for for who Bond is, considering his background and stuff. But this sort of stuff, these sort of discussions don't really get brought up in other shows. The, The weird part for me is this season has become theme episodes. We had the little kid, we had the old lady, we had the athlete, we had the consumer advocate, we now have our race show. And regardless of what it is, that's just not what the show is supposed to be or, or says it is or even or how I remember it. I still think the best stuff, in, is stuff involving the non-performers over the years is the stuff where they're breaking from who they are. I thought Julian Bond did really, really well at that tonight. Um, the music was fine. I found that the one music set really detracts to the point that by the end of the episode, I couldn't remember who they both were. For me, this was a hard one to grade, but for just plain old laughs, it was slightly below average. But oddly enough, I'm not putting this at the feet of the host because I I, I thought he did quite well. And so often with these non-performers, you can point right to Ralph Nader or Ron Nesson or Fran Tarkenton and say, you're the reason the show sucked. I can't do that with, uh, with Julian Bond. 
So I actually went with a 5.5 on this one out of 10. I think I'll remember this episode better than a lot of the ones I've done with you guys. I liked the host. I thought he did a very good job for what he had. I agree. The musical guests won't be memorable, but I didn't hate them, which is rare. (laughs) If you eliminated the parts of the show that kind of made me cringe a bit in terms of, like I said before, like they were just using it as an excuse to do like the race jokes in this episode, I probably would have ranked it higher. But even still, I'm giving this one a 7 out of 10. I enjoyed the host and the music wasn't bad. So 7 out of 10 for me. I'm thinking about it. I, uh, you know, the cold open was fine. The monologue was wretched. I didn't like the tax guy thing. Uh, Black perspective was really good. I loved the hideous villain family counselor. Weekend update was okay. The music was pretty ho hum for me. Tough to grade in a way because I, I shouldn't say it's tough. How am I not used to it? Just being torn all over the place. By the quality of these episodes, pulled in so many directions by, you know, brilliance in a sketch and then idiocy in another. This is why we do it. It's a fascinating watch. Your boy, Matthew Ryan, he would give this a five out of 10. All right. And so with uh, my 5.5, Matt's five and Chili's seven, this averages out at a 5.8. And the folks at the Internet Movie Database gave this one a 6.6. Making this episode, hold on to your socks, gentlemen, the lowest rated episode of season two. Not the worst we've seen, man. I don't agree with that. No, not at all. Yeah, this is uh, number 459 uh, of all the episodes up to November of 2021. So, yeah, I'm not digging that at all. This was actually, this was middle of the road for me for this season. Uh, You know, this is better than a lot of episodes this season for me. I thought so too. It was it was exactly middle of the road. We've certainly been sitting through worse. And I mean, you could even argue that last episode we watched was worse, even though I took a perverse pleasure in it. I wouldn't say it was better, quote unquote. I scored this one higher. Well, this one was better than in my opinion, at least the Ruth Gordon episode and uh, who was the old fellow that we watched? Broderick Crawford? Yeah, like for me, this episode was better than both of those. I'm not saying it was great, but I had a lot more fun. So, Chili, thank you very much. Uh, this is it for you for us for season two. So uh, thanks so much for everything you've done throughout the season. And uh, thanks especially for tonight. I love doing the show. So anytime you want to have me, let me know. Matt, do you know who's hosting our next episode? It's Elliot Gould, isn't it? It is Elliot Gould. And do you know the musical guests? No, I don't know the musical. The McGarrigal Sisters and Rosalind Kind. That sounds shitty. I know you're a big fan of one song that the McGarrigal Sisters do. Oh, good. I hope they do it. Uh, They won't. Ah! (laughs) Cursed! No, Log Driver's Waltz. The Log Driver's Waltz? Get out of here. Yeah. So, yeah, Matt and I will be back in about a week, and we're scheduled to have our, our, our other third chair, Mark, joining us. But until then... We'll be ironing out all our differences at Dr. X's co-host counseling here in Essen Hill. <laughs>